You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In the late afternoon, Little Bee's sister, Nikiruka, came down out of the jungle and found her hiding place. She sat down next to her. They hugged for a long time. They were happy that Nikiruka had managed to follow Little Bee's trail, but they were scared because it meant that others could do it too. Nikiruka looked into her sister's eyes and said that they must make up new names for themselves. It was not safe to use their true names, which spoke so loudly of their tribe and of their region. Nikiruka said her name was Kindness now. Her young sister wanted to reply to Kindness, but she could not think of a name for herself. The two sisters waited. The shadows were deepening. A pair of hornbills came to crack seeds in the trees above their heads. And then... Sitting at my kitchen table, she said she remembered this so clearly that she could almost reach out and stroke the fuzzy black back of the thing. A bee blew in on the sea breeze, and it landed between the two sisters. The bee was small, and it touched down on a pale flower. Frangipani, she told me, although she said she wasn't sure about the European name. Oh, and then the bee flew off again, without any fuss. She hadn't noticed the flower before the bee came, but now she saw that the flower was beautiful. She turned to kindness. My name is Little Bee, she said. 
When she heard this name, kindness smiled. Little Bee told me that her big sister was a very pretty girl. She was the kind of girl the men said could make them forget their troubles. She was the kind of girl the women said was trouble. Little Bee wondered which it was going to be. Chris Cleave is a columnist for The Guardian. His first novel, Incendiary, won the 2006 Somerset Maugham Award. His new novel is Little Bee. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you, Rick. It's really great to uh, talk with you again. Chris, your new novel has a very interesting subject at its core, which is the refugee experience. Now, you had spent your childhood in Africa, West Africa. Tell me about that. Six weeks after I was born, my father took a job at a brewery in West Africa in a country called Cameroon, where we lived in the capital city, Douala, which is on the equator. And it was a very warm place, physically and emotionally. And it, was, it was like living in a hot cloud. It was steamy, you know, very humid. Uh, we had monkeys in the garden, hummingbirds, you know, banana trees. And it was a very warm environment. You know, we were uh, let out into the street with our telephone numbers scrawled across our chests in Biro. You know, wherever we ended up at the end of the day, you know, some mum or dad would, you know, do the right thing and phone up to, you know, to get all the kids collected. You know, it was a very safe, uh, friendly, multicultural environment. Um, there was always music. It was a beautiful, you know, a beautiful place. And I have very warm memories of my childhood. We moved back to the UK when I was seven years old. My dad's job out there was finished. And we moved from this very, you know, emotionally warm place back to London in the middle of the winter where it was snowing. Um, so I, I was taken out of this French-speaking school. It was French Cameroon that we were in, into you know, obviously an English-speaking state school in London in the snow. And, you know, it was, it was real profound culture shock. I found it very hard to fit in. I found it very hard to understand what this country was that we'd come to that seemed so bitterly cold and unpleasant, you know, emotionally speaking as well as physically. It was very difficult to fit in. I think it's that sense of cultural separation, cultural alienation that I had that's that's come into this new novel. I wouldn't say that I remember West Africa well enough from my childhood to describe it, so... The, the West Africa in this book it, it is very researched. You know, it's not it's not taken from memory. Um, whereas what I have taken from memory is that real shock of arriving from one culture into another, and that's why I think I really, I really warmed to the character of Little B. And although I couldn't understand what a character like her would go through, I think I had an inkling of it from that just amazing sense of shock of being transplanted between cultures when I was a kid. Well, that's fascinating because you, your parents were English, correct? I oh, yeah, that's you. right. Yeah, so, and Believe so. it or not, they <laughs> <laughs> we're probably one of the only English families that, that moved to West Africa for economic reasons. You know, Britain in the, in the 1970s, you know, it was a very poor uh, place. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of um, problems. You know, my... My family were very poor, um, and my dad found a, a really well-paying job there. So we went to Africa. Upon your return, um, how long did it take you to, like, I guess even learn the language because you'd been speaking French mostly? Well, we'd been speaking French at school, but mm-hmm. English at home. Um, so I was fine with the language. 
um, technically speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's quite another thing to go into an English school, you know, at the age of seven or eight. And uh, the English that seven or eight-year-old English schoolboys speak is not English English. Uh, it's incredibly vernacular. And so it was as if I didn't speak the language. And I, I didn't understand any of the slang. I didn't know what things meant. I was just... To, to them, I would have been such an alien. You know, it was really hard to... To, to learn how to fit in, to culturally how to speak the language, if you like. Well, that's one of the most interesting things that you talk about in, in this book is the separation of language. Language is one of the, the big themes of this book. And you have this really interesting concept of what you call tales. Hmm. Could you talk about where that concept comes from and maybe how it reflects back on some of your own experiences as a child? Sure. Um, the... Um, I find that language is something that a culture defends really rigorously. Um, whenever you get a small group, they start to have a, an in slang, and you belong to that group if if you know the specialized vocabulary that they use. Nations are no different. I, I learned um, in researching this book, really, that um, English English is a very different English from Nigerian English, which... No, English is the official language of Nigeria, but they um, speak it very differently. It's, if you like, it's English plus, and it's English plus um, an extra 5,000 words of vocabulary and, and a set of very rich idioms. You know, Jamaican English as well I needed to research for this book. It's completely different. And just in, you know, in terms of grammatical structure, the order in which you start constructing a sentence, totally different. And... I became really interested in this idea of needing to learn a language, you know, this profound sense um, in order to fit in with a group. And you, you literally talk your way into things. Uh, and I, I find this fascinating, you, the way people persuade each other of their right to do something, not by rationally arguing it out, but just by adopting the right register in which to tell their tale in order to narrate themselves in into life and th- that's really what i wanted to explore the power of language to to open a door for you well one of the things your uh, character little b says that's just as really striking is that how important stories are to her and her culture and could you tell me how did you research the nigerian culture to, to get these kind of insights because when we see things through Little B's eyes, it really feels like there's this really interesting filter and, and, and we get to see the world and it's reinvented for us. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I, I love this. To take, um, uh, to take a narrator who is absolutely alien um, and to bring them into a setting that to me is quite familiar. For example, you know, modern European society uh, but if you view it with a set of completely fresh eyes, it, it suddenly seems well, everything seems open to argument. You know the way we do things. If we've done it for a thousand years, it doesn't necessarily mean it makes any sense at all. Um, so, I I really liked having a narrator who was you know, that could could have been from another planet, and it, it was really interesting to research where she came from in order to get that right. I guess there's three aspects to you know, how I went about exploring her character. And the first thing was really just to listen. One of the things I like to do as a writer is to get speech patterns absolutely right. 
because as as we've discussed, I think that defines someone. Mm-hmm. You know, more than their ethnicity, you know, more than their gender, more than their profession. You know, I think the way people express themselves um, is the key to them. So I listen a lot. Um, how do I do that? I, I um, one of the great things about living in London um, is that just down the road there's, there's a big Nigerian community, mm-hmm. um, and so if you want to know. You know what the, what the sunrise looks like in Abuja. Um, you can just go down to South London and ask someone. Um, and and if you listen carefully, not only will they give you the information, but the way in which they express it will will unlock a lot about the culture. I just learned, you know, just the wonderful sense of humour that's that's built into the culture. Um, I, I my favourite example is um, the the many uh, words that there are in. Uh, Nigerian English for um, for bandits and baddies uh, and um, you know, general sort of inhabitants of the night. You know, uh, prostitute in uh, in Nigerian English, you can say night fighter. And um, I love that this, expression. <laughs> yeah, there's there's um there's a bunch of them, and I, I start you know the the seed of Little B's characters comes from picking out these expressions and thinking what they say about I know just I think the big heartedness of the culture that mm-hmm. that generates them so there's a lot of listening to to people a lot of listening over the internet actually um, one of the amazing things about being a writer now with the internet is you can listen to talk radio stations from anywhere in the world so you listen to sure, Nigerian yeah. talk radio Nigerian talk radio from wow. Abuja and from Port Harcourt and you know it turns out that talk radio is the same everywhere in the world as uh, people <laughs> you know phoning in to um, to discuss what's happening in their town to complain about taxes and to talk about whatever the gossip is in the news you know and uh, you can really tune in you know by listening endlessly to speech patterns it really comes to you so I think yeah part one of the character was um, researching the, by listening. Part two was um, just learning a bit about Nigeria as a country, which turns out to be an incredible place. I mean, it's a very civilized country. It's a federalized republic. It's a democracy with problems. But, you know, <laughs> the, the United Kingdom is a democracy with problems yeah, as well. well so right? is the so, United States. <laughs> sure. um, so one of its big problems in Nigeria is that the southern region, the delta area of Nigeria, is pretty much a, a contested space. Uh, they discovered oil there in the 1960s. And Nigeria now, I mean, a lot of people don't know this. Nigeria is the eighth largest exporter of petroleum in the world. I mean, it's, it's huge. And whenever there's oil, there's conflict. So in the south of Nigeria, um, there are Western oil interests. There are tribal rivalries. Um, there are you know, language barriers as well. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. a really heady mix of trouble. Because there's a lot of different uh, languages between the tribes. They speak different languages yep, yep, in addition speak, to English. Yeah, exactly. English is the official language, mm-hmm. um, but there's lots of ethnicities and languages in, in that area. And, of course, it has a big history of conflict, you know, since the Biafran War there. Mm-hmm. Um, things haven't completely settled down. And so you've got this interesting mix of a country, Nigeria, which is very... Uh, civilized, very sophisticated in the north, has a great university in Abuja, um, but then down in the south, absolute chaos. Um, and Nigeria turns out to be, you know, the second biggest um, exporter of um, asylum seekers to the United Kingdom because of these difficulties. So researched a lot about 
um, Nigeria. And I guess the final bit of getting into Little B's character was listening to a lot of refugee stories um, from from Nigerian refugees and from other um, parts of the world. Just Did you listening take to how they start. No, um, I, I talked. I talked with people. Um, people were very funny about um, me uh, taping interviews. I, I tried to be just quite respectful to write mm-hmm. things down, to uh, not release names. You know, to to really try and protect um, people I was talking with. And I also listened to a lot of um, transcript. Um, sorry, a lot a lot of recorded interview and read a lot of transcript of interviews with refugees and asylum seekers that comes from a lot of the amazing sort of support organisations that exist in the United Kingdom for asylum seekers. So it was those sort of three aspects that led to her voice coming through. When you started writing this book, I, I did you just like launch into this voice? I, I, I want to get a kind of an idea of your process because it seems um, it's really beautifully written and seems very, very tight. Did, did you like just start writing it or did you have an idea of what you were going to talk about in the plot? Sure. That's a really good question. <laughs> I I, um, I started exactly in the middle of the book um, and worked out, out in both directions. And the, the way I write is, is a total mess. I wish I could, I wish I knew in advance what my books are going to be about. I I start in the middle, I get a voice, I get a character, and you know, Little B's character just started to seem so strong that I needed to work out her story as I told it, and so I worked backwards and forwards through the book, and by the time I turned something in, you know, it, it, it's the 10th draft, you know, I've been over every sentence 15 times, and uh, I, th- I think the trick is to, to make it feel smooth on the page, and try not, I guess sometimes not to overly complicate it. things you describe are the detention centers mm. and 
in the back of the book, they call it a, that they say that you visited a British concentration camp. Yeah, and I use the term advisedly. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of um, the connotations that the term concentration camp has, and I, I use the word um, because I think it concentrates attention wonderfully. Um, the what, what we do in the United Kingdom um, with a certain proportion of the asylum seekers that we have is that we do intern them. Um, this happened about a dozen years ago that we started doing this. Pre prior to that, asylum seekers were dispersed in the general population. And now what, they're, um, what happens is that they're um, detained in these centres, which are now called immigration removal centres. And they, they correspond to the textbook definition of a concentration camp, which is that you take a... Um, a, a subset of the population which is distributed throughout the general population and you concentrate them in one place for ease of processing. You know, th these aren't people who've committed a crime, right? It's different from a prison. Sure, um, sure. I don't know. So if you don't call it a concentration camp, you have to struggle to <laughs> to talk about what it is. And, um, and I think that the term is shocking and I think that um, draws attention quite wonderfully to the fact that the, the treatment of these people is shocking. They're, they're asylum seekers. They're people that have gone through hell um, and they're coming to a country and applying for asylum, which they're legally entitled to do. And yet we treat them in a way that, you know, we wouldn't treat animals. So I, um, I mean, that, that was the, the motive for writing the book because I, I just could not believe that this was happening in my country. Well, how, how did it, how did you stumble across this, or, or or what made you? How did you discover this? Completely by accident. Um, I was at university. I was working. I was doing a summer job. Um, I signed on uh, as a casual labourer, and one morning uh, they took us to a muster point where we got into a minibus, drove out through the Oxfordshire countryside, uh, through a perimeter fence and then through another perimeter fence. You know, these are razor wire fences, very high security place. And it turned out that we'd arrived in this place called Campsfield House um, Detention Center for asylum seekers. Now there are people at the time who lived three miles away from this facility who didn't know that it existed and didn't know what it was for. Um, these are places that are really shrouded in secrecy and it just so happened that I ended up working there for three days, working in the canteen, um, serving really quite awful food to asylum seekers. So I got to meet these people from Somalia, from Sierra Leone, from Nigeria, um, from the Balkans conflict at that time, um, because this would have been uh, 93, summer of 93. And uh, I met all of these people and I slowly worked out what they had in common <laughs> because a lot of them didn't know. They didn't know what kind of facility they were in. A lot of them didn't speak English. you know. And the conditions in that place were absolutely horrific. And some of the things that I've discovered about these places, I mean, um, there was one of these centres where if you wanted to, um, if you had a headache, I mean, you could apply for a paracetamol or an aspirin, um, but you had to do it 24 hours in advance and in writing. You know, you have to, you have to predict that you're going to have a headache, right? Um, and that that's just a small example of what, on a large scale, is a system designed to bully and humiliate these people into into acquiescence. And um, I, I was shocked that it existed. And when I spoke with my friends when this job was over, you know, three days in, 
Um, that was the end of the job. I talked with people and none of my friends knew that this place existed. None of my friends knew that asylum seekers in the United Kingdom were treated this way now. I because, sure didn't. No, right. Well, people don't because we have this image of an asylum seeker, I guess, as, as quite a heroic figure, right? I mean, after um, during the Cold War, an asylum seeker was was a glamorous and heroic figure who'd, who'd got across the Berlin Wall, right? And sure, who'd, um, sure. Uh, and they were likely to be a scientist or someone that we needed or, you know, <laughs> a, a ballet dancer. And... Uh, uh, and you know these people are no no different. They're fleeing from persecution, and yet um, there, there's no glamour attached to them anymore. And in fact, they're treated you know worse than animals now. Um, they don't they they have very few rights. They're not looked after in a dignified way. And these are people who are extremely vulnerable and have come from places where they've gone through unimaginable things. And I felt that. You know, as as a civilized society, well, we should be strong enough and comfortable enough within ourselves to help these people, and and that's what everyone assumes is happening. You know, I was uh, I was really shocked to discover that it wasn't. Really shocked, and um, well, shocked enough to write a book about it. Now, in in uh, the novel, little B is in that center for two years. Do these people ever get out? I mean, it seems that's a long time for processing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a jail like that. That's right. It is. It's a long time when you don't know when your release date is. Uh, it's a long time to be detained indefinitely. Um, I've read cases of people who've been in those places for five years, um, pending a decision um, on their asylum application. Uh, they never have a day in court. Their decisions on their lives are made in in private um, by civil servants. There's there's no jury. Um, there's a right of appeal, but it's it's not always a particularly effective process. This sounds like Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> it does. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not for yeah. It wouldn't be for me to to draw the parallel, and I'm 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 not. Uh, there's no sort of inferred. Um, application of what I've talked about in the book to any other um, civilization. I mean, all, I, all mm-hmm. I've researched is the United Kingdom. Um, but um, it is true that most of the countries um, th- where I've now talked with people following the publication of this book have, have their own issues with human rights and with a, with a sector of, the, of their population who, who don't have the same rights as everyone else. And I, I find that really interesting. I find that to be um, a symptom of cultures that are, that are worried about their own sense of identity and are worried about their um, ability to you know, continue to be strong and cohesive. I, I, I worry that... You know, I mean, I'm just talking about the United Kingdom here, mm-hmm. uh, but I was always brought up to think that we were a strong and decent people who would um, do things fairly. And we really don't have that much else going for us, right? It <laughs> rains all the time. Uh, it's a very small island. It's pretty overcrowded. I and mean, one of the things that we've got going for us is this sense of fairness. And I think that's why I get very exercised when you know I see unfairness on such a large scale. Um, operating behind closed doors as well. It just doesn't seem very British. Well, for all the, you know, unfairness and unhappiness that kind of infuses this book, 
it's very funny. <laughs> and, and it's a kind of a light read. I mean, it's pithy, and what you say is really important and well said. But it's a lot of fun to read. Could you talk about infusing <laughs> these kind of uh, often very horrific situations that will practically make the reader want to burst out into tears if you're not already burst out into laughter, which is very confusing to the reader, but <laughs> it's um, very sure. enjoyable. <laughs> sure. I am, uh, I'm convinced, especially after having met a lot of these um, people who, who've, you know, who've suffered uh, horrible things, that one of the things that's got them through it is a sense of dignity, a sense of self-worth. Um, because once you've taken everything else away from someone, I mean, you've taken their home. You've, in many cases, you've taken their family, and quite brutally, you've taken their country. You've taken their passport, for goodness sake, and they've got nothing, no work permit even. Um, pretty much the only thing they have left, you know, the people who survive, is a sense of humour to get them through it. Some of these people can be you know, very, very funny. And that really struck me, that... Um, the fact that you know tra tragedy and comedy often coexist often the the most awful things can happen in a way that's at some level quite ridiculous quite funny um and i thought that i would try to to bring those two things together to bring comedy and tragedy together not just into the same story but into the same sentence so that um your, you know, one's understanding. Um, for me, as a as a writer or as a reader, you're discovering as you go whether you're going to find this funny or sad, and it's quite it's it's a nervy feeling. It kind of keeps you on the edge of the story the whole time, um, and it certainly it certainly kept me locked into it when I was writing. Well, that's a that's really interesting. So, what you're saying is that you use this kind of balance between humor and horror, and we'll talk about horror because you have a very interesting discursion on that. Um, to as a as a plot driver, sure. Ways. That's yeah. really interesting. I mean, I um, I think it helps uh, me as a writer and the reader as a reader to to stay engaged with a subject that's that can be one of two things. It can be so horrific that you don't want to look, or it can be so big that you don't want to look. I mean, um, immigration is a subject that's talked about endlessly in, in the media and, and this big sort of statistical level. This is how many immigrants there are. Um, this is you know, what, our, what our policy is towards them. But uh, it's so big and it's so inhuman that our eyes kind of glaze over. Uh, whereas if you can take one human life out of that and exemplify that whole refugee crisis in the life of one person, and if you can make it funny, then suddenly, you know, the, the, me as a writer or the reader, um, as a reader, can look at that again and see it for what it is. And so I really use the, the, the humour to, to make it bearable, to make the pill swallowable. Because once you do, you realise that this is, is a big and fascinating story. You know, immigration... It is the big story in town. That's what's happening in our world. We live in a time when populations are moving around the globe as they never have before. And I wanted to find a way to write about it that that was exciting, you know, that makes real life thrilling again.
one of the things I think that you do really well, and we talked a little bit about this, is to get the language patterns down. And I wanted to talk in particular about the way you write out um, the Jamaican English. Mm. Because this is a, a, it's a very peculiar argot, and you really seem to, to get it down. Did you, like, consult the uh, uh, Jamaican newspapers to see how they wrote stuff down or, or talk to people? How did you get that down? Yeah, good question. And it's extremely contentious, actually, the way that you, that you write Jamaican English on the page. There's lots of different schools of thought. If you read a Jamaican newspaper, you know, um, they're, they're written in very grammatical English, often using a vocabulary that's richer than you'd expect in an English newspaper. Really, almost quite melodramatic English um, would be like a typical um, Nigerian newspaper news story, uh, but, but written in standard English spelling. Whereas when you, you know, when I listen to a Jamaican voice, the, the pronunciation is so different from the way that English is formally spelled um, that I didn't think it was right to, to write it as formal English. I'd, so what I do is I just write it down um, as I hear it, but I don't put in a bunch of apostrophes and you know, punctuation marks to indicate that these are abbreviated forms of full English words. I mean, I treat it as correct and I just transcribe it. Oh, that's a really interesting perception. So that the 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 uh, punctuation would would indicate that it's not correct, and mm. you're you're taking them their language as correct. That's sure. Yeah. I mean, if someone drops a, a G, for example, off the end of a word, you know, if if they say strong in, instead of strong, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm not going to write S T R O N apostrophe because that's a judgment on on a language which I'm not trying to judge. I'm just trying to to transcribe it. I'm trying to represent how it's spoken. And um, so, yeah, I, it's actually, it's, it's very political, the way that, that the language is, is written down, the way that non-canonical Englishes are written down. I mean, this it's a huge field of study, actually. <laughs> and so it's, n- it's not one that I've stepped into lightly. You know, I, I, I had to make a really... Um, strong decision, I think, um, one way or the other about how I was going to represent this language. Because uh, it, it, it's, it is its own language. It's correct. It's beautiful. And I just wanted to, to write it on the page. Did you cons- What kind of official sources did you consult? Did you talk to people? Did you show Jamaicans what you wrote down? Oh, well, there's, there's, um, a, uh, there's a Jamaican English dictionary, uh, two Jamaican English dictionaries that I used. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that have... Um, a bunch of the extra vocabulary and a bunch of idioms in there. Um, there's uh, there's lots of um, attempts to transcribe Nigerian and Jamaican English that that exist. Um, a lot of South London writers, um, you know, use uh, a patois when they when they write, mm-hmm. um, and. So, so you can look at various different people's ways of how they've tackled this, this sort of non-standard Englishes, mm-hmm. and in the end, you know, I just decided I had to, I had to just write it the way I heard it, and that would be the most honest and straightforward way to do it. Now, this book deals with some uh, themes that are familiar from your last book too, and I'm thinking in terms of Sarah, Andrew, and Lawrence. Um, Infidelity and grief, and sure. in particular, grief. One of the things you do that I think 
uh, we heard in the reading that that's really beautiful is, is your ability to um, address grief and, and sadness as evidence of survival. Sure, yeah. I um, I think that um, the bereaved state is a really interesting one uh, because people are absolutely sane when they're bereaved and yet they will act in ways that are strange even to themselves. Um, on a simple level, you know, um, I was talking to a woman whose husband had died and, you know, rationally she knew that the man was dead um, and yet um, she was still putting out an extra um, serving at breakfast time for him and, you know, when asked why, she would say, well, it's in case he comes back, which is... It's a crazy thing to say, and yet she's not crazy. She's sane, um, but she's bereaved. And I, I, I'm really interested in that state. I'm interested in um, the, the, what, what makes someone who's in a heightened state of emotion, what makes them decide, well, actually, I'm not going to drive to the shop. I'm going to turn left and drive to Scotland instead. <laughs> and you know, and what, and what happens? You know, the, there's something really quite beautiful in the human soul, which directs us towards novelty when we're um, when we're bereaved, or when we're depressed, or when we're really, you know, emotionally strung out. We'll do these things that tend to give us new experiences, um, almost as if your body is directing you towards these new experiences, almost as if. Um, it knows right, that, that what you need is something new. And often this new experience will be quite extreme and it will really change people's life. I mean, I, see, I don't see bereavement as a depressing thing. I mean, I see it as a sad thing, um, but it's also the beginning of something. And, and that's not just, you know, that, that's not a cliche. It's the beginning of something because you will tend to have these really weird experiences that kick off a new story. So as, as a writer, I'm most interested in the people who are in those heightened emotional states. And that's why I'm really interested in people who are bereaved. That's why I'm interested in people who are traumatized. And it's why I'm interested in people whose uh, relationships are breaking down, whose marriages are breaking up, you know, hence the infidelity and stuff that, that characterizes some of my you know, people in, in, the, in the books. Um, it, and it's not because I'm being morbid. It's actually because I think these are the big transition points in people's lives where where new stories start and where you know where anything is possible. I, I love that part of human life where suddenly you, the whole weight of your history is lifted off your shoulders and you could act in whatever way seems right in a situation. When everything is stripped back, there you are. What are you going to do? You know, you're, you're a new person again. And uh, these are the moments I love. I find it very hopeful, you know, to write about people who have almost been broken, but not quite. And they find a lifeline and they pull themselves back out. Wow. That's really that that the observation as a writer that that's those are the opportunities where the new stories come from. And that gives you uh, the ability to, I guess, improvise and play with your characters in ways that you couldn't do if they weren't in those states. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's what I mean by saying that I don't, I never plan what they're going to do. It's not like I sketch out a plot of the novel. It's not like I work out intellectually what it means before I do it. 
All the justification and rationalization that I do is, is post hoc, just as it is in people's lives. <laughs> right? Because, you know, often, you know, I don't know why I turned left and drove to Scotland for 600 miles instead of turning right and going to buy a bottle of milk. You know, I don't know. Uh, uh, three years later, I'll be able to turn around and say, oh, I did it because... Um, you know, I, I remembered that I had a relative in Scotland that I knew I needed to visit. But at the time, you just do things because you do them. I love having characters that just do things because they do them. And, <laughs> you know, it, um, it, it's, it's exciting. I, and I, I'm, I, I really like people. I like their ability to survive things. And I, I, like, um, I like the thing that makes them decide to survive instead of to kill themselves. And this is the... This is this is the sort of spectre that hangs over all my characters in all my work and hangs over all of us as well, right? It's like, well, why are you bothering to get up and go through your day unless you feel that life is suffused with this kind of hope and possibility? And uh, I, I, like, I like trying to get to the heart of that, you know, getting to the heart of what, what gives people joy and what what's that lifeline that they're reaching for and when is that moment that they're going to sort of break through the surface of their life and up onto the surface of it and suddenly breathe again you know that's um that's 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 why i love to write now you have a really interesting discursion in this book uh little b talks about horror horror yeah uh, tell me about your interest in horror okay well um Little B in the book makes an observation that, that horror in, in our Western civilizations is, is something that we occasionally need to take a dose of to, to remind ourselves that we're not suffering from it um, chronically. Uh, we'll, we'll go and see a horror movie, right? We'll, we'll, see, um, we'll, we'll go and see something with monsters. Or Increasingly, actually, horror films don't have monsters. They just have human beings who are really particularly brutal. <laughs> and... We do that to remind ourselves um, that we don't live in that state permanently. Like we, we have these horror films to remind ourselves that we don't live in a permanent state of fear. And these things have an effect on us. They're, they're awful. And they serve as, I don't know, a memento mori, or they serve as uh, a reminder that we've never had it so good. You know, it's actually a very healthy thing to go and see a horror film mm -hmm. um, and then to come out of the cinema thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> no, um, thank goodness for sunshine. Thank goodness for people who will smile rather than bite my hand off. <laughs> um, and uh, whereas, of course, some of these refugees have been have come from places where people bite people's hands off. Right. I mean, they've, they've come from places where horror is chronic rather than acute. Um, they. There are places right now, you know, in Darfur or in parts of um, Sierra Leone or whatever, where the most unimaginable barbarity goes on, where you know, things happen that I don't want to talk about uh, on, on the radio or, or even think about, you know, just the awful things that people can do to each other that becomes part of daily reality in some places. These are the, these are the places that refugees are fleeing from. You know, they, they're coming from places where horror has become a chronic condition. Um, and uh, I, I think it takes them a long time to come down from it. <laughs> you know, they, they arrive in something that's um, theoretically a safe country. It takes a long time to lose that um, really terrified edge and that suspicion that horror is 
everywhere. Um, and we've grown up in, you know, in a, in a joyful, most of us, in, in a, a difficult life, but an essentially joyful one. And um, a lot of these people haven't. You know, and, and that's that's a big distinction that's made in the book horror, as as something that 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 we need to take to remind ourselves that we don't suffer from it. You do spend a bit of time inside the the British government in this book. And yeah, it, it's it's not the the happiest place in the world. Sure. It's not Disneyland. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you did you spend a lot of time talking with uh, people who worked in the environment that you describe, and, and how how did they how have they reacted to your portrait of it? Right. Yeah. Well, there's a character in the book who's um, a press officer in the British Home Office, which is our you know, Ministry of, of Internal Affairs, I guess. Um, yeah, that's the the Interior Ministry. And um, they, uh, well, I mean, I, I had, this is quite an interesting story. I spent a very long time going through um, the, the formal channels, trying to get an interview with anyone who worked there. Because having spent months um, interviewing lots of people who advocate for asylum seekers and lots of people who are militantly against the way we treat asylum seekers in the UK. Well, I really felt that I needed some balance and I felt that I needed, you know, the official point of view. I felt that I I should give um, someone who was running this system a right to reply and hope that that would inform my fiction as well. And so I tried and I tried really hard. Um, and I, I I left I don't know how many messages and I you know I got assigned uh, a, a contact in their press office who kept assuring me that they would get back to me at some point, and I realised that in the end the game they play is that they don't get back to you and they try to run out the clock on you, um, and so you know they're not in the book they're they're defined by their absence and by the things that they don't care about and the things that they don't talk about and the silences that they do leave. And so the character um, that I've put inside the the home office in the story um, is 
is, I think, quite an accurate portrait based on the people uh, I know who have talked to me, who do work inside that system, who are good people. Um, so I, you know, I I have an informal channel that lets me know what it's like in those places, um, and you know, I don't think it's releasing any state secrets to say that a lot of the people in the British Home Office are very disenchanted with it, and they um, are good people who um, feel that institutionally the system is moving very slowly. Uh, this is your second book, and I wonder if you talk to me about the difference in experience for you as a writer between your second and your first book. Was it, were they different? Yeah, completely different. My first book was Incendiary. It's a story about um, a mother who loses her son in a terrorist attack on London. And she just wants him back so badly that um, she can physically see him. You know, he manifests himself to her. And, you know, she's um, she's beyond bereavement, you know, into, into insanity, really. Um, and who wouldn't be, you know, when something that precious had, had just been taken out of your world? Um, it was very visceral, very emotional book. Uh, I wrote it in six weeks. You know, the first draft of it I wrote in in six weeks. It was one of those things you go into your room, you know, with a with a laptop, and you come out, you know, six weeks later with a beard and and a, and a manuscript, and, uh, and 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 take the consequences later. Really, I mean, it was hugely damaging mentally to to write. Um, because I just didn't sleep really while I was doing it, and it was really intense. Um, whereas this book was completely different; it was much more thoughtfully done. I I researched it for a long time. I, I wrote it. Um, I wrote the whole thing twice, actually, um, and so it took um, yeah two and a half years to do, rather than six weeks. It's an entirely different beast than my. Um, creative process was very different. Um, it was more of a more of a marathon than a sprint, to use the the old phrase. And but I hope it it reads more like a sprint. You know, there's a lot of work has gone into into it, and it's been a for me as a writer a healthier process. I feel better for having written a book. I feel that I've learned a lot, and I feel that I've gone on a journey myself through through doing it. And even you know, even if it were not to be published, even if um, no one reads it, I would think that the time had been worth it this time. Whereas um, writing incendiary just felt like a punishment. <laughs> really, it was really hard. And whereas this one's been really quite you know quite a joyful project to to do. Well, that's really interesting that you call it a joyful project because there's so much. It's shot through with with so much pain and, and joy. But could you talk about? We talked about the emotional arcs of the characters, and, and what about your emotional arc? Oh right, um, yeah. This gets to the heart of why I write. I mean, I uh, I I try to make ugly things beautiful, and that gives me great satisfaction. And taking something that's horrific and trying to find the hope in it, I see. You know, uh, us lot humans, if you like, as um, c continually suspended between hope and horror, and I think we have a capacity for both within us, and 
the capacity for both to manifest themselves quite unexpectedly on, on any given day. I'm a great believer in people and the, and the capacity of hope to outweigh horror. You know, I thought the fact that we're all still alive on Earth at the moment and not extinct as a species means that we do find it within ourselves daily, you know, not to rip each other's heads off, <laughs> to, um, to get on with each other. And, and when I write, I'm really trying to, um, to, to walk on that very, very um, fine line between the hope and the horror and to find these situations where an ordinary human being could be asked to choose in the most stark terms between them. Um, and when I, when I do that, it reminds me how good people are. You know, it reminds me that, you know, there, there is something extremely beautiful in, in our existence that, that is really precious. And I, I define it for myself when I'm, when I'm writing, I'm, I'm concentrating on it. And that's, you know, that's. That's my emotional journey, if you like, when I'm when I'm writing. That's why I do it, and it um, it it it's good, you know. <laughs> I come I, I I come out of it feeling uh, better, and and it's because you know of the people I meet when I'm doing it. Now I just think, you know, in in researching this book, when you're a writer, it just gives you license to go up to people and ask them like really simple questions like how did you feel when your village burned down right? that you wouldn't generally do and just sitting there listening to the answers, thinking about them and then writing it down in a way that's, that's, that has some hope in it is, is what I'm in the game for. I mean, it gives me, um, yeah, gives me a, a sense of engagement with the world, that I'm part of the world and that uh, and that I'm still learning. <laughs> I think that's that you know, that's why I do it. That's my journey. I've been speaking with Chris Cleave. His new book is Little Bee. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thanks, Rick. For the Agony Column and KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with the Literary Events Calendar for the week of January 11th. To include your event in our listing, please email me at agony at trashotron.com. Monday, January 12th at 7.30 p.m. at Bookshop Santa Cruz, local writer John Malkin with co-author Alan Nelson explores the spiritually active practice of compassionate nonviolence in The Only Alternative, Christian Nonviolent Peacemakers in America. Call 423-0900 for more information. 
at Capitola Book Cafe on Tuesday, January 13th at 7.30 p.m. It's Poetry Santa Cruz with poet, musician, and visual artist William Minor and Roz Spafford, a writer, activist, poet, and former teacher at UCSC's writing and journalism programs. Call 462-4415 for details. Wednesday, January 14th at 6.30 p.m. at Capitola Book Cafe, the book club will discuss Sacred Games by Vikram Chandra. Read the book and join the discussion. Questions? Call 462-4415. At Gateways Books and Gifts, Wednesday, January 14th at 7 p.m., Remember Who You Are with Linda Carroll. Therapist and writer Linda Carroll merges the best of poetry with her own discoveries and wisdom to guide us on a seven-stage journey of recollection, reconnection, and recovery. Call 429-9600 for more information. At Capitola Book Cafe on Wednesday, January 14th at 7.30 p.m., Sarah Powers brings you Insight Yoga, sequences that teach the dynamic flow poses, yang, and the more passive resting poses, yin. Powers also offers a basic explanation of Chinese medicine theory, as well as Buddhist mindfulness meditation. Call 462-4415 for details. Thursday, January 15th at 7.30 p.m. at Capitola Book Cafe, Sunny Schwartz reveals Dreams from the Monster Factory, a tale of prison, redemption, and one woman's fight to restore justice to all. Tackling the thorny topic of prisoner rehabilitation, Schwartz, the founder of the Resolve to Stop Violence Project, aims to create a prison system that joins offenders and victims in a union of empowerment and accountability. Call 462-4415 for details. At Bookshop Santa Cruz, Thursday, January 15th at 7.30 p.m., Jane Ann Phillips will read from her rich and layered new novel, Lark and Termite. Set in the 1950s in West Virginia and Korea, it is a story of the power of loss and love, the equine ramifications of war, family secret, dreams and ghosts, and the unseen, almost magical bonds that unite and sustain us. Call 423-0900 for more information. Friday, January 16th at 7.30 p.m., Nora Vincent engages in a voluntary madness, My Year Lost and Found in the Looney Bin. For her New York Times best-selling book, Self-Made Man, Vincent spent 18 months living as a man and emerged from the experience severely depressed and feeling as if she were a danger to herself. She committed herself to a mental institution and wrote this book about her experience. Call 423-0900 for more information. For the Agony Column and KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with Who's Reading in and around the county for the week of January 11th, 2009. Get out there and read a book.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.